0: You're about to listen to the Tech UK podcast, first released in August 2018. Hi, everyone. This is Rob Driver, Head of Public Sector at Tech UK, and welcome to the August edition of our podcast. This month, we'll be focusing on building the smarter state how we can use technology to transform the public services that we all rely upon. To discuss this important topic, We'll be hearing from some of those working at the front line of digital transformation in the public sector. Coming up, we'll be speaking to Sharon Holden, Director of Adult Social Services at Southend Council, about what happened when they recruited a robot to help them work with care home residents. And Zoe Cunningham, Managing Director of Softwire, on what it's like to break into the public sector as a small business. But first, let's take a look at what was making the news in August. Focusing on the public sector, Tech UK has launched a guide to help councillors deliver digital transformation in local public services by tackling leadership, marketing engagement, and creating a user centric approach. The guide gives advice for newly elected and incumbent councillors on how to confidently begin the conversations around digital transformation. And if GovTech is your thing, The Government Digital Service has published the findings of a Public Sector Innovation Survey. The objective of the survey was to understand current activity across government in what might be termed new or emerging technologies that are related to digital or ICT. There are some fascinating findings, so be sure to check it out on the GDS website. I also wanted to highlight an event you might be interested in. I will be hosting a market briefing with Niall Quinn, Technology Director at the Crown Commercial Service, on the 9th of October at Tech UK. If you are interested in the digital marketplace or are a supplier on the G Cloud or the Digital Outcomes and Specialist 3 framework, then come along. We will also be serving pizza, beer, and soft drinks afterwards. Check out the Tech UK website for more details on all of these insights and events. Most people will know someone who has needed adult social care at some point in their lives and according to research this will be true for more and more of us. Experts are expecting a 25% increase in demand between 2015 and 2025, while funding over the past decade for public social services has fallen. In the face of such challenges, the local authorities who provide adult social services have been turning to technology to deliver better, more efficient care. I'm here with Sharon Holden, Director of Adult Social Services at Southend-on-Sea Council to talk about one such scheme Last year, the council recruited an unusual addition to their team, Pepper, a 1-meter-tall humanoid robot who is believed to be the first robot to work in local government in the UK. Sharon, hi. It's great to have you with us.
1: Hi, I'm glad to be here.
0: Um, so firstly, how did Pepper come to be part of the South End Adult Social Care team?
1: Um, In a way, by accident, Um, it it was PEPPER, but it could have been been a different solution. Um, We had been thinking, I'd been talking with some colleagues about the um, very live agenda in social care and indeed in public sector and local government at the moment around um, transforming practice and changing not only the way we do things but the nature of our relationship with the community and with the citizen and one of the things that we often hear and we often say and particularly in adult social care is we need to find a way to do something um, really different and really radically different and we need to really change practice and we say that a lot. Um, I've been reflecting in recent years that we rarely do it. And and so I was spending a bit of time thinking about what could we do that would really be different? Um, And that would promote some debate and take things in a different direction. Um, and in the course of talking to some of my team, um, and we talked about this quite a bit, and there was a, a particular day when we were um, we were talking budgets and talking about a very small surplus that we had in our equipment services and trying to figure out in the usual way we would, um, what can we spend this on? And, and I guess the usual solutions would have been more of the same mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, and we got to talking about what if we were to buy something um, anything that would be so different that it would really spark people's imaginations and inspire. Um, and then we get... One One of the guys in my team was particularly interested in robotics, um, went away and did some research, put together a little PowerPoint presentation about what the possibilities were out there, not for social care, actually, but just um, what was happening in the world in terms of um, artificial intelligence and robotic technology. And... Um, we saw Pepper and we felt that that really could fit the bill.
0: That's, that's really interesting. And I suppose from that initial meeting you must have had and then to the point of having uh, Pepper sort of being part of delivering services, must have taken quite a lot of courage. <laughs> you know, what, what what did that look like in practice mm. in making such a sort mm. of courageous and transformative decision?
1: Mm. Um, I think... The, Well, I I know that we went into it, and I certainly went into it, acknowledging that we didn't know where it was going to take us, and that was okay. Um, And that was part of the doing things differently, because traditionally in local authorities and in social care particularly, we we go for the proof of concept Mm -hmm. before we do anything, um, and we almost prove it to death. And by the time we've proven it and maybe sanitized the concept to the point where the element of risk is acceptable to us, we've actually not come up with a new idea. It's, it's just a slightly different take on ideas that we've had previously. So part of the doing things differently was about doing it the other way around. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yes, I guess it was courageous. and um, It also is incredibly empowering. Um, and energizing so my experience in getting the team together was that once we really got going on the work the fact that it was new the fact that it was different the fact that we were so vested in seeing where it would go and how we could make it a success was what drove us to success yeah. really
0: and there you know in the in the intro we sort of talked about um two two pressures facing local government more broadly that there has been a reduction in core funding um, nationally and also demographically, there's going to be increasing pressures on on services. You know, is that like a, a real catalyst for innovation in that, you know, lots of local authorities are going to have to innovate, are going to have to do things differently, you know? Mm. How did that inform some of your thinking? Mm. In that, do you think that kind of provided you with a bit of a impetus to do mm, something mm.
1: quite innovative yes I, th- I think it definitely did that was one element of it um we talk a lot in in this to current parlance in social work definitely around strengths-based approaches mm-hmm. um, and asset-based approaches yeah. to social work um and starting with what is working in someone's life rather than looking for the deficits and trying to plug those gaps um, and for me um i trained as a social worker over 30 odd years ago so um actually back in the day that was what we called social work we didn't badge it as strengths-based approaches or asset-based approaches because the whole profession really in essence is about empowering and enabling um so it's always been in my mind that that's the way we should practice and it's always been an ambition of mine to to lead a service that genuinely does that um so it was a real impetus but I also was very motivated to demonstrate how we could apply an asset-based approach to ourselves as leaders. So not just about expecting staff to operate in a certain way according to a new formula, but as leaders um, demonstrating that we could do it too. So instead of focusing on, which I think many of us in leadership in social care have been doing for the last few years, focusing on um, our lack, and and cuts and what and the amount of money that we no longer have we really wanted to consciously focus on the money that we did have and what we did with that
0: yeah that's really interesting and and so i suppose following on from that you know what does what does Pepper look like, mm. and, and what does Pepper actually do? Okay, um, you know, you know where, mm. will there be a time where I'll be able to do a podcast with Pepper? You know, you what? could have done. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's in
1: the building, um, well Pepper is for for, for anyone who hasn't um, seen him, and he has got quite a lot of extensive media coverage. He is, as you said, I think in the intro, about a meter high, just over a meter high. Um, humanoid robot he is called although if you see him he looks nothing like a human (laughs) and but he does have those recognizable body features a head arms um he doesn't have legs um, his arms are interesting because they are completely jointed as are his fingers. Um, so he is he's very expressive and as he speaks his gestures are completely congruent with what he is saying. Mm. Um the interesting thing is that although we program his speech, he actually programs his own gestures to match the speech. So, so that is that is a real insight into the power of and the potential of artificial intelligence and, and it's fascinating to see. We don't program his gestures at all. Um, He has a large, he's sort of like an alien head. Um, He doesn't have a specific gender, but interestingly, most people refer to him as he. We have some people who very specifically from the off have called Pepper she, and are quite convinced that Pepper is a she. Um, That in itself is a really interesting dynamic about how people manage that and why people think that. (laughs) Pepper himself will say if you ask him that at the end of the day, he's just a robot. And um, so Pepper's, Pepper's speech is completely programmed. He, um, although he is artificially intelligent, as I say, it is programmed intelligence, he's not um, like Alexa um, connected to the, to the web or the cloud. So um, if you were to ask him a completely random question that we had not pre-programmed, he probably would answer actually based, based on the knowledge or the data that he already holds, but it, it would probably not be a, a correct answer. Um, and so we, in terms of what he does, um, we bought Pepper under academic license. So part of the conditions of the, um, cost that we got him for, he cost us 17,000 pounds. Um, was that we use him for education purposes. So we have a partnership with some local primary schools and Pepper interacts with children in a range of ways. We use them for awareness raising in schools um, around the, the potential and the possibilities of career in digital and technology type industries. Um, we use Pepper to connect younger people and older people Um, Two of the main areas of social care work that Pepper does at the moment is with older adults in a care home setting, many of whom have got degrees of dementia, and Pepper runs reminiscence sessions for those people. And also uh, with younger people with autism and Asperger's, Mm -hmm. and Pepper um, has joined a group of those young people and is, I guess could be described as a conduit for relationship building and communication for people for whom building relationships is quite challenging.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and what's some of the feedback been from that, what really diverse group mm. of people who have mm. had contact with Pepper? you know, mm. uh, be it the, uh, the individuals themselves, or perhaps their carers mm. or their parents, so what's some of the mm. feedback mm. been about, you know, mm. what their experience with pepper has been like?
1: overwhelmingly positive. Um, I think we, our experience of showcasing Pepper and launching him was that um, absolutely the vast majority of people when they meet him are completely bowled over and enthralled and even some previously sceptical colleagues have been enrolled, and it's amazing to see him give his programmed speech to an audience of people and they applaud him at the end as if he were a person. And The key to Pepper, I think, is is for some reason he has the ability to engage with people um, so we were expecting positive feedback, but I don't think we were prepared for the degree to which it was so overwhelmingly yeah. positive. Um, we did expect there to be some reservations. Um, they've really been so minimal as, as to, to be able to reduce it down to a few people, a few individuals. Um, no one has been scared of Pepper regardless of the age, and we talked about the wide age range of people that he sees, including some people who have got no experience of um, using technology of any type, even phone technology, that that most of us would consider standard. Um, No fear has been shown. Um, Excitement, uh, curiosity, um, joy, actually, and... in, in some some very particular cases and, and in the case of one young man in the group that I was referring to who had been a member of the group for two years and in that two years had never spoken to any of the group members or the group leader and when he attended would only sit with his mother and not um, engage. The first evening that Pepper joined the group for a meet and greet he left his mother's side he came up and spoke with pepper he spoke to other people he spoke about pepper and he's described by his mother as a completely different character and the absolute joy that she's expressed at watching that and experiencing that has been just so rewarding for all of us. Um, The fact that she can actually get a cup of tea while Mm -hmm. she's at the group with him and allow him to engage is so positive. Um, And it's giving us insights into communication, particularly with people and for people who have got um, challenges around communication with other people. Insights that I don't think we would have gained if we'd seen if we'd not had the opportunity of seeing people engage with someone who is not a person yeah. although to all intents and purposes people as i said relate to pepper as if he is a person so i guess the challenge now and one of the things that we want to um, develop our work in is what do we do with all this information and um, so we know it's good we know there's a good impact but pepper is just one of the tools we've got um, at our disposal in terms of transforming practice and we want to be really clear that he is one of those tools and so we we want to learn the lessons that he's teaching us we're really keen to develop partnerships that we've already um, begun to incubate if you like with academic institutions who are interested in researching that impact Um, and also, um, it, it, Pepper has helped us become um, a credible um, organisation in the eyes of academic researchers or indeed funders in terms of the technology business because we are, we like to say that we at Southend are open for business and we want to explore means of um, embedding technology, not just Pepper or robotic technology, in everything that we do and yeah. um, some of the other Um, ideas that we're exploring are the development of robotic frameworks in um, properties and smart houses that take everything in the home to the person rather than the traditional assistive technology approach which is to give someone something that means they can go about the home in different ways so the home becomes alive if you like and pepper will be part of that but he's not the whole story
0: yeah and I think, I suppose picking up on a few of the, the different themes and issues we've sort of talked about, um, certainly, you know, when, when sort of in the, in the tech industry people get very excited about the technology, mm. but mm. certainly in the public sector the technology shouldn't really be the starting yeah. point. The starting points are, yeah. I suppose, the needs of the yeah. population um, and also the assets that are out yeah. there in, in the community. Um, and it's a really sort of complex environment, but you know, how do you sort of see the future of service design Mm. and how you embed technology in that? You know, Mm. I think you've probably touched on a lot of it already, you know, perhaps engaging more with partners, you know, taking more of an asset-based approach. Mm. But I suppose, how do you see the relationship between the service design and technology in the future? Mm. It's a complex, long-winded
1: question. Yeah, it's a a very live question for us here in Southend, particularly because we are involved in um, a, our major corporate programme at the moment, which we call South End 2050, and it actually is about designing our ambition for the town. Um, not just the usual three-year or five-year or even mm-hmm. ten-year plans that typically in local government we develop, but we are um, really looking to the future and engaging with the whole community around what do people in South End want to see South End like in 2050, whether they will be here or some of us may not be here in 2050 but what is our ambition and our aspiration for the town so to answer the question around around design and how technology and industries like social care will will collaborate in 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 terms of um well i i don't think they will be distinguishable i think it it will be um and and it's happening now and it is with us now technology is such an endemic part of life that it's almost now not um the conversation to have to ask the question where will technology be in relation to social care i i don't think any of us can imagine that it will not be in, mm-hmm. in intrinsic to social care so with that in mind we want we want to be designing that now we want to be driving it we want to be um contributing to that agenda um we don't want to be in a position where I think local authorities have been in um, in the past. To, to we don't want to be following behind, and um, we we actually want to be saying people, real people with real needs, need this or want this, and we want we want to show you what it is they want, and we want to, we want to show you what it looks like and how it works. Um, so I don't know if that really answers the question about what will it look like in the future. But I, but what it will look like, I don't know what it will look like in the future. But it will look more seamless and joined up yeah. than it does now. And I think there will be less of a, there will be more of a blur between um, a range of industries. So I don't think social care will be as standalone or specific as it is now. I think we have links to make, more and more links to make, particularly with business. Um, and with industry um, with regeneration and it's almost it it's almost like in, in local government everything is coming full circle and it, and it really is as one I, I think in 2050 will be a lot more like that than it is now but we're certainly trying to prepare the ground now
0: yeah. and it, I think anyway it goes down to what does the demographic of the future mm. look like as well because it's quite interesting to look at I've got um my my grandmother's in, in a home and my, my mum's nearly seventy mm. now, you know, and I sort of and now I'm sort of seeing as my, my grandmother's in a home, I'm thinking, Well what's what's gonna be like my mum's mm. older and mm. how I'm gonna care mm. for mm. her? Mm. And actually mm. but they're so completely different in that, mm. you know, my mum's you know, she's, she's always on Facebook, mm. she's mm. Yeah, always using an iPad, mm. Mm. and actually the culture's very different, mm. you know, for the mm. sort of baby boomer generation. Yeah. You know, my mum's down the gym, Yes. like, you know, yeah. like five yeah. times a week. Yes. You know, and actually mm. it's it's the way people behave, the skills they have, the assets they have, yeah. you know, that sort of needs to be built in. Absolutely. In the way people are going to yeah. be independent, you know, mm. and I suppose the way technology complements that, you yeah. know, is one of the, the tricky questions, and you know, how you predict that is probably
1: impossible but there's mm. some of those things you do you do know about mm. I think I mean none of us and you've mentioned those examples so you know you and I won't be prepared to sit in a circle weaving baskets yeah. and 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 nor should that's, anybody that's Saturday, it? Yes. be yes <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, so but that doesn't stop overnight does it yeah. so so and and also we can't we can't fall off a cliff with it. So I think the key is that if we know that now and if we're saying that about ourselves now, then it's up to us to put in place the kind of things we want. Mm, I I think also that there is a move and I'm glad about this move and I want to promote it, but we move away now from talking from such service-centric type of conversations. So it's not so much for me about what services will be available, but it really is about how will we live our lives and what do we need to develop that just helps us live our lives in that way so that we can go to the gym um till the bitter end because there are various different ways of going to the gym aren't there and 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 that is the real key that that's that home for life concept um and the idea that a community is about everybody in the Mm -hmm. community these are the things i think that we need to be deliberating on and focusing on now and these are the things that technology can really help us with
0: yeah and is it you know and you know you know so much research shows that one of the main factors for people remaining happy and independent in later life is having social connections Mm -hmm. you know and how important that is for you know sort of mental um Mm. well-being you know and you know if if older people you know are um, adept to using social media Mm. and this kind of technology to keep those um, those connections alive, yeah. you know. Who knows what that mm-hmm. looks like and what impact, mm-hmm. impact that will have? Mm. Well, that's been great. Thank you so much, Sharon. And it's been really, really interesting to hear about Pepper and all of the interesting themes and issues that um, surround uh, surround him or her. <laughs> um, so I'd just like to say thank you so much, Sharon Holden, Director of Adult Social Services at Southend on the Sea. For talking to us about Pepper the Robot.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: And it's absolutely great to have uh, one of Tech UK's uh, most prominent SME members uh, working in the GovTech space, uh, Zoe Cunningham, uh, Managing Director at Software. Hello, Zoe. Hi, Rob. How are you doing?
2: Uh, fantastic.
0: Um, and it's really great to have you along, um, specifically because we wanted to bring one of our smaller businesses in to talk to us about the experiences that they've had um, working in the public sector and really to get a feel for what it's like to be a small business working in the tech space, both within private sector and the public sector. Um, you know, we talk a lot, um, certainly at Tech UK. Um, government, politicians are always talking about it and how important small businesses are for the UK economy and for innovation um, across private and public sector. Um, So I thought it might be useful just to get, um, I don't know, a bit of like background of what it's like to be a small business working in the UK to maybe kick things off and to maybe give a bit of a plotted history of software.
2: Cool. Well, the history of software actually is very interesting because, um, and I've been at the company um, since right at the start, so software started in January 2000 and I joined that summer as the ninth employee um, and one of the kind of first uh, graduate intake of software developers. So uh, I've been there at the company since we were nine people until we're now 150. So actually looking at how things have changed as we've grown, Is really interesting because I think there's some experiences that we get from having been doing something for a long time but I think there's also things that are quite relevant to the size of your business so for example when we started software um, the bulk of our work came from friends of the founders Mm -hmm. so there were three founders they'd come from another software development company and the first projects that we worked on were people that they knew who they knew needed some work or people that they could phone up and say how about it we've got some great software developers and that was both the most accessible work when you're a very small business and also sufficient work because there were only five software developers Mm -hmm. at You know there's enough work there to kind of keep people busy and then to grow once you've done your first projects you then grow on that you do some projects with the same people you get some referrals so then you can kind of grow from there so we did our first piece of public sector work um a few years later i think maybe about 2004 and it was a little bit of an accident so we got a um an electronic tender notification through Uh, which actually is a really good way of knowing Mm -hmm. what um, opportunities are out there. You know, there's a legal requirement that everything has to be advertised by tender and you can sign up to the emails and just skim through and see what's relevant for you. So we just saw this um, bespoke marketplace project. We thought that was quite a good fit. Um, And then we worked on that for really quite a long time and it was a project from the University of Salford Mm Um, setting up a supply marketplace and there were lots of it was a good fit for us because there were lots of different challenges it wasn't just a simple system that they could have bought for someone it was about integrating all the different parts together Um, and so we did think following on from that that perhaps we should be looking more into public sector work so we hadn't we were just we we were small we were just open to any work that was out there really to kind of build our name and and build up um, experience and and start working with new clients. But this made us think maybe we should look into this more. And what we found is that that we we would have been, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 people at the time. So our business development team was one lady. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And everyone else is pretty much software developers. And Our usual way of doing business was very informal. So we would meet with people, we would find out what their requirements were, we'd work together to try and find any possible fits for what we do. We could then offer our services and say, well, we could build this, maybe you haven't thought of it. Or if people knew they wanted a system, we could say, well, if we built the system, we'd build it like this. But that whole kind of informal chat was very important to us both for explaining to people who we were, because obviously they hadn't heard of us, we were a 30-person software company, Um, and also for us to understand whether it really was the kind of project that we would fit on, because actually there are lots of different ways to go about uh, solving a business problem that you might think you want a software system for. There's um, buying a system off the shelf that already exists, you know, and tailoring that to what you need or even just using it wholesale. There's also lots of non-software solutions often. Um, can you change your business processes? Mm-hmm. Um, can you adapt something else? Can you use a spreadsheet? And actually, how much the business needs to invest, you know, there's lots of other factors. It's not, Software is never simple. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always a lot of options. So actually for us to have that opportunity to chat uh, helped us to work out whether it's right for us, um, what kind of investment it's worth us making in a bidding process. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most of our work, um, we didn't go through an official tendering process. We just found a solution and yeah. if it worked, then we did the work. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I suppose just
0: picking up on that, Zoe, like. Lots of companies um, may sort of consider going into to work in the public sector or they may be like, right, we're going to get, you know, a business development team or person to to actually to focus to focus on this as a potential market. And then, you know, certainly some of the experiences that I've heard from some of our smaller, um, smaller companies that are members of Tech UK, that they kind of just got put off from um partly of the bureaucracy perhaps the or and whether that's real or perceived but that kind of bureaucratic machine and trying to engage with it um you know and some of the 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 more formative experiences for software you talked about but it was through someone you you knew and like you know a bit more of an informal process to to get business which i suppose isn't the way that the public sector works. You know, I suppose the question being that, that is there, a, is there a, uh, a difference between the perception of working in the public sector and it being very difficult to the reality? Is the reality somewhere in the middle of it being sort of relatively straightforward and relatively complicated? You know, what's it like in practice?
2: Um, The first thing to say is that, actually, although there are standard frameworks and everything's set up to go through the same standard procedures, working with the public sector is not actually a uniform experience. Mm -hmm. And that there are lots of different government departments, uh, different local authorities, different government organisations, all of which have their own culture and some of which are actually excellent to deal with. Um, Camden um, Council have been our client mm-hmm. for um, quite a while now. They're fantastic. They're known as being you know, one of the yeah. most technologically advanced yeah. councils. Um, <coughs> they're fantastic, whereas some of the other organisations, it's not even that they're having technological challenges. They've actually got organisational, structural, political challenges mm-hmm. going on which makes it very hard to do business with them, irrespective of the process. Yeah. So I think that's kind of worth, and and I think it's easy to get scarred yeah. <laughs> by your experience working with the public sector in one instance, and kind of map that across in your mind to say, well, actually they're all like that. It's it's not going to work for me.
0: Yeah. And I, j- just on that, Zoe, and um, maybe sort of dig a bit sort of deeper on that that issue that. How much of it is cultural, do you think? And you know what could change because Camden's a good example. Like yeah, you know, Camden's Camden in London. It's hip. It's cool. You know, you'd expect people to be you know techie there. Um, you know their their former um, lead member for technology and finance, I believe it was, was Theo Blackwell, who's now the chief digital officer at GLA. So you know they had. they had a leadership there, didn't they? And and it must have had like a culture, a a, a cultural um, kind of difference to perhaps some other uh, local authorities that maybe there's not a real desire to engage perhaps with, with SMEs or with tech companies. You know, I wonder whether, you know, you've got any, I don't know, thoughts or reflections on what the public sector could do to try and change some of that culture. Because I think a lot of it's probably a willingness to engage you know perhaps with a broader range of suppliers um, to actually be a bit more open-minded about what different ways to work you know is there any experiences from that or any thoughts
2: so something that I'm seeing a lot at the moment which I think is fantastic and I think is key to, to changing the culture going forwards and I think a lot of this has been spearheaded or kind of catalyzed by GDS as well uh, is hiring in external people from the private sector to lead on technology, so hiring CTOs, CDOs and the reason for that is I think if you don't, um, back to what I've said already which is going to be my kind of byline, technology is complex, it's complex. Um, If you're used to procuring fixed if you're used to buying paper clips or something, yeah. you buy in bulk, or even hardware computers, software is complex. It doesn't work like that. It's um, d- down to the fact that if you're working with software developers, they're people and human beings. They're not interchangeable. You can't just buy them and put them somewhere yeah. and, <laughs> and they'll just churn out yeah. software at some <laughs> kind of uh, rate of production. It, it just doesn't work like that. Um, so I think that To build up those skills, I think it's definitely worth um, finding schemes and opportunities to build those skills in-house. But in the short term, I think you need to get people in from the outside. And then, this is the key step, you need to trust them and let them run with it. Yeah. Because it's so easy to shut people down. It's so easy to say, well, I want this piece of software. It has to do this. I want it by this date. And to kind of draw people into a box, which means they can't use the full benefit of their experience and their innovation, and that cascades all the way down. So there's and I think there's a big gap in technology, which again perhaps isn't the same in all industries, but in technology there's a big difference between someone getting the job done and someone doing the job to the best of their ability. And it's not necessarily about the person. Obviously, you've got to have the right people in the right roles, but even the right person in the right role can fail to deliver to the best of their ability if they're not in the right mm-hmm. environment. And that's where, you know, we're talking about culture. For me, with technology, almost everything comes back to culture. And for us as a small software development agency, that has been our key focus since the start. Yeah. Um, both because software developers are, um, they're rare in the market. If you want really good software developers, um, they've got lots of options open to them and you need to find a way that makes them want to work for you. So that's obviously one driver. But the other driver is that to get the best out of your people, you need an open environment where they feel free to step up and volunteer ideas and information and different ways of doing things um otherwise it's just going to lay buried yeah and that's quite
0: interesting actually because i was having a conversation with um a, a, a chief digital officer at of one of the one of the major uh, whitehall departments and we we're talking about capability and getting the right staff in and getting people with the right skills, particularly, um, I think this was um, experts in data analysis. Um, and actually, what it's like, what's the pitch to perhaps people who are in their early to mid-twenties? Because the world is changing and demographics are changing as well, because whereas maybe people are sort of put off a bit about going into a huge kind of government department, even though you might get like a good pension and other perks. But equally, these people are kind of put off going into a huge corporate company as well. You know, and I think that there's people in sort of, you know, who are in demand or soon going to be in demand, because they've got a few years experience of really valuing working in, SMEs because of that culture because it's a bit different and actually in this conversation we were talking about you know it's what could a huge government department in trying to attract staff learn from some smaller companies and I think it's that that kind of um the company ethos I suppose and software's got a pretty neat story you know about about growing and I just wonder I suppose just to finish off any thoughts you've got on that you know we talk about private sector and public sector being completely different. We talk about public sector just being this one thing. And I think we've kind of debunked both of those things. You know, is there anything, I suppose, some advice you would give to both a small company wanting to work in the public sector and also the public sector wanting to engage with small businesses? You know, what would you kind of say to them to try and do things differently or what could be improved?
2: Um, So I think the advice to small businesses um, is quite straightforward because there is um, an extra level of work required um, to be able to start working with the public sector. That is definitely the case. And so that means that for that to pay off as a business, you need to have a long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. So for the larger corporates, it's an absolute no-brainer. You know, they have teams and teams of people, you know, putting bids in, building relationships and so on. Uh, For a small business, you need to not think of it as winning one project. You need to say, this is a strategy we're going to pursue, we're going to do it for the long-term. And I think that's only time it's going to be worthwhile for you as well mm-hmm. so actually perhaps you know you have to have a yes no decision and if you go for it then go for it and you will find that as you build your credentials that will be respected because people that will go oh well okay they work with them and they understand how to work with the public sector mm-hmm. so we'll work with them again um in terms of the public sector i think that um reaching out is so important yeah and, I, and it, it's easy to kind of think, well, if people have something to sell, they'll come to us. But actually, for all the reasons we've discussed, they might not. Yeah. And the more you can make a welcoming, a welcoming environment and say, we want to know, tell us yeah. you know what, what you've got and how it would work and what would make it work for you um without that becoming an onerous process in itself which is always a risk mm-hmm. um that actually if you can find a way to have informal chats i think that you'll get a lot of valuable information that way
0: yeah and i and i think that's it seems like that that's spot on in that from that first story you told about that quite informal nature you know of getting business and business developments you know obviously there needs to be accountability structures within the public sector, but there is no, there's no reason why you can't adopt some of those principles more in how you're engaging with, with suppliers. Mm-hmm. Um, well, great, well, I think that pretty much wraps things up. So I'll just say a really big thank you to Zoe Cunningham, Managing Director at Software. Thank you so much, Zoe. Thanks, Rob. That brings to an end this episode of our podcast. As ever, we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. So why don't you get in touch with us on Twitter at TechUK or drop us an email on press at techuk.org. For more information on activities across TechUK's programmes and upcoming events, you can visit techuk.org or check out our LinkedIn page. I've been Rob Driver. Thanks very much for listening. Enjoy the rest of the summer and we'll see you next month.